Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel, coming to you today from an almost improbably snowy Sapporo in Japan. Today on the show, we'll have two guests, Derek Hurd, who's a senior lecturer in Chinese studies at Lancaster University in the UK, and Gong Song, who is associate professor in the School of Chinese at the University of Hong Kong. And they'll be talking about their co-edited volume, The Cosmopolitan Dream, Transnational Chinese Masculinities in a Global Age, which was published last year, 2018, by Hong Kong University Press. Now, from the economic to the political, the ecological to the cultural realms, China's global rise has been analysed from many perspectives in recent years. But questions over gender, which arguably are just as pressing as these uh, these other perspectives, in particular over masculinities, haven't been asked so often, especially in the context of China's contact with the wider world. Fortunately, however, our guests are already established as among the primary contributors to a steadily growing body of work on Chinese masculinity and manhood, and that's why it's such a pleasure to have the chance to talk to them today. Derek Hurd and Gong Song's new volume, The Cosmopolitan Dream, approaches the question of Chinese masculinities in transnational contexts from a brilliantly diverse range of perspectives. As specialists in media, language, literature, gender studies and anthropology join forces to discuss the subject in many revealing contexts. From domestic film and televisual portrayals of globe-trotting Chinese men to the experiences of Chinese migrant fathers working in Ethiopia, Chinese uh, students studying abroad in the United States, or Chinese male gangsters appearing on German or Japanese TV, readers will get a rich sense of just how importantly masculinity figures in all China's global entanglements and how it's changing amidst these. Heard and Song expertly marshal the array of material covered here in these punchy chapters, doing a great job of tying themes together and drawing out the specific commonalities to many experiences which make this a highly relevant read. In many ways, we might suggest, therefore, that this book embodies in its very form the kind of cosmopolitanism that the title refers to. There's something for everyone here, and uh, it's all adeptly curated by the editors uh, who bring everything together into a coherent whole. But in any case, to discuss this ambitious project further, uh, I'd like to welcome the two editors, Derek Hurd and Gong Song. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, Derek and Gong, Thanks very much for agreeing to appear. I'd like to ask each of you, if you would, uh, to begin by introducing yourselves and and uh, saying something about uh, how you became interested in your topics of study. So, Derek, why don't uh, you go ahead? Sure. Well, thank you very much for having us on the podcast. And uh, my interest in Chinese masculinities really began to emerge uh, during my master's uh, studies on uh, Chinese women. Uh, where I was looking at the ways in which the uh, Women's Federation in China had strategized uh, to combat uh, domestic violence in uh, China. And uh, uh, clearly, uh, the perpetrators of domestic violence were largely men. And uh, as I proceeded with my master's thesis, this was at the University of Edinburgh, I began to think more and more about the kinds of uh, different masculinities that were uh, in practice uh, in everyday life and that also could be found discursively uh, in representations uh, in the media. Uh, And so I decided to take up uh, the challenge of looking at masculinities in China as a kind of follow-on from my master's Uh, in my uh, doctoral project. And uh, I moved to uh, the University of Westminster, uh, where I was guided by uh, the excellent and inspiring uh, Professor Harriet Evans, uh, uh, who has uh, 
worked on Chinese women and gender uh, for many decades uh, and has produced some uh, really uh, insightful works. And so under her uh, supervision, I then uh, uh, did a a, a doctoral project on uh, white-collar men in China. And uh, Mm. the reason why I studied white-collar men was because when I went to China, to Beijing, uh, in the uh, mid 2000s, uh, this was uh, uh, really a, a representation of masculinity that one could not avoid. Uh, there were um, images of the successful white collar man appearing on a TV adverts mm. on billboards and in TV dramas and so on and so forth. So that's really the trajectory of my uh, my early years uh, studying masculinities, and I've just carried on uh, more or less doing masculinities into my. Uh, my full-time job. Yeah. Right, right, right. Great. And how about you, Gon? What's, uh, what's been your trajectory? Oh, thank you, Ed. Uh, it's my pleasure to talk with you and uh, share with you my research on Chinese masculinity. Uh, I think I, my interest in Chinese masculinity started with my PhD dissertation, uh, which is on the male lead, the male uh, the title of my PhD thesis is a fragile scholar. So I was focusing on the image of uh, the effeminate scholar type, scholar image in Yuan drama and uh, the pre, pre-modern Chinese literature. You know, mm-hmm. so the question was why this type of image, uh, who was obviously uh, regarded as uh, effeminate uh, or feminine by today's audience, was regarded as an ideal masculine or the ideal lover in pre-modern China. Um, so I uh, that that was the central. Um, question, central topic of my PhD, and that thesis was developed into a monograph, which was my, which is my first book, uh, The Fragile Scholar, Power and the Masculinity in Chinese Culture. And from there on, I um, shifted my interest to more modern and contemporary uh, types of masculinity, and I was interested in the change of um, uh, the, the the models of masculinity in China um, in the past uh, century. Mm. Um, so, as Derek said, um, we collaborated on the monograph on men masculinities in contemporary China, uh, which is an interdisciplinary study on uh, both the representation and everyday life of men and masculinity in China. And our central, uh, the basic argument or conclusion of the book is that masculinity is becoming increasingly hybridized. Mm-hmm. So there was no such, a, there's no such, such a thing as a, as a, a, you know, a monolithic Chinese masculinity uh, in today's China. Or it's, a, it's meaningless to talk about a, you know, unique uh, Chinese masculinity because masculinity is uh, becoming, uh, you know, uh, hybridized and, mm. and, and influenced by global trends in China. Mm. And, and so that's the, that's the, um, uh, my second book collaborated with Derek. Mm. And, uh, I'm, I'm now working on, um, uh, a project on Chinese TV and gender politics and Chinese TV. Mm. So that also involves, uh, how men and, uh, masculinity are represented in, Popular popular culture in today's China. I see. I see. And you, and you mentioned uh, Gong that uh, yeah, as you say, you had a previous uh, jointly authored book uh, that you worked on together. How was it that the collaboration between the two of you came about? Oh, I just um, um, saw Derek's thesis, PhD thesis, online one day <laughs> when I when I was in Australia because uh, before I came to Hong Kong, I taught in the Australian National University. Um, so I have been working on this project and uh, I've finished the three chapters, but I find that it's uh, insufficient or it's um, uh, it, 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 it's not. Um, 
uh, a good idea to focus on representation only. So I'm, I was trying to look for someone who also working in this field. And just mm-hmm. uh, accidentally, I find Derek's um, uh, profile, and he uploaded his whole the entire thesis online. And I, and I read it. I find, oh, this is great. This is exactly the person that I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just sent an email. I, I never met him before. Uh, he was teaching at West uh, University of uh, Westminster at that time. So I just emailed him and suggested the idea that um, probably we could work together to combine. Um, the study of media and representation this and the ethnographic study of men in daily life mm-hmm. and, and he agreed and then we just exchanged emails and 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 and, and collaborated yeah fantastic yeah. oh well that, that's the uh, kind of uh, i guess yeah serendipity that can occur especially with the uh, yeah i guess uh, online online academic exchange that's that's brilliant. yeah <laughs> But um, De- and Derek, Derek, could you, I mean, perhaps give us an account from your side of how uh, the difference between co-authoring a book as you did on your previous project and co-editing, uh, which has been this one, works. I mean, in terms of the division of labour, I, I think these are kind of questions that anyone involved in similar endeavours is always curious about. How, how did that kind of uh, work out between the two of you? Yes, uh, they, they are two very different endeavours. Uh, so starting with the co-authored uh, book that we uh, that, that was published in 2014 uh, on men and masculinities in contemporary China, the as, as Gung said just now, he had already prepared uh, some material, some chapters on representations uh, of masculinities in various media, and my thesis uh, and my subsequent uh, work had uh, quite a substantial component of ethnographically uh, informed uh, uh, research and writing on on, uh, contemporary Chinese masculinities. So we didn't have too much of a problem in uh, bringing the main body of the the book together because, uh, you know, Gang was able to supply chapters on the uh, representations. I was able to supply chapters of more ethnographic aspects of masculinities in the family, in the workplace, in the leisure activities. It then became a question of uh, reading each other's drafts and mm-hmm. uh, and then reworking our own uh, drafts uh, so that they could reflect the ideas and the uh, themes uh, that were present in in the other persons. So through that process of redrafting, we began to uh, bring a coherence to our material, which had been obviously developed in in isolation, but uh, we had to clearly bring a thematic uh, conceptual coherence to it. So it was through that process of redrafting that we managed to do that. And then for the introduction, uh, again, it was a, a question of um, Gung preparing a draft uh, on the uh, representation side, uh, introducing them and, and, and myself from the more ethnographic side. And again, through a similar process of just viewing each other's uh, drafts and then uh, reworking our own drafts to make sure that we uh, uh, reflected each other's ideas and thoughts and came to some kind of agreement over the particular uh, theoretical line we would take. Um, and, and through that process, made it happen. Now, when it came to the uh, uh, edited volume, uh, it's it's more a kind of management of uh, a, a project management, I would say, <laughs> that uh, editors uh, are, uh, need to be involved with. So... Uh, In this case, uh, the the majority of the time was taken up with uh, emailing the uh, various uh, collaborators uh, uh, and and looking. Obviously, we had to uh, look through their various uh, uh, drafts. We divided out the work uh, and we had to uh, 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 put in our own thoughts, send back our our suggestions to the, the different authors uh, and then, so there was a kind of uh, crossing of um, uh, drafts and uh, in in these in, in email uh, exchanges, where uh, we 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 just took on uh, a kind of um, uh, complementary roles to each other. So if, if one person took the lead on uh, reading through and commenting on one particular tra- chapter, then the the other person would then offer a sort of second uh, view of it. Uh, when it came to the introduction, this time I, I, I took the lead in drafting the 
majority of the introduction, and then Gung uh, came back with his parts that he uh, inputted into the introduction and, and his suggestions for reworking my parts. And through that process, again, toing and froing, uh, we got to the uh, the, the final version. Uh, right. So I think our, our experience in working together on the, the co-authored book had been very smooth. Uh, and so editorially in the second project, uh, we, were, we were already set up with a good working relationship. I think I, I would emphasize here for me that the key thing is uh, a, a working relationship um, uh, that is built on kind of understanding of the other person's um, working style. And uh, <laughs> if both people can kind of... Uh, cohabit, uh, you know, or come to terms with each other's working styles, uh, then uh, there isn't a problem. And I think in this case, uh, Gung and I have fairly similar working styles, I think, so mm. no problem. Right. I think that comes across pretty pretty well, actually. Yeah, the, the, certainly, there's the, the the introduction is, is very seamless. There's no, you know, there's no uh, indication that there are that there are kind of two uh, di- divergent or discordant voices there. So uh, yeah, it's clear that you found a, a great um, a great uh, collaborative. Uh, kind of mode there um but uh well it, it, having, having got a sense of where it comes from and uh, and how it came about why don't we jump right into the book um Derek if I could get you to to carry on really by taking us into the introduction that you've just mentioned um could you say something in general perhaps a little more about uh, the top the broad topic of uh, Chinese masculinities why it's an important focus of study at this point and why in particular the transnational dimension uh, is is what you chose to focus on Sure. Uh, well, I, I think uh, nobody can have failed to notice uh, the uh, economic and uh, political uh, expansion of China's uh, presence uh, at a global level over the last few decades. Uh, and uh, as, as you uh, yourself mentioned, Ed, in your introduction, uh, Chinese gender uh, perspectives uh, are quite often uh, n- not the most prominent in the story of this rise of China. So that was one uh, aspect of our desire, uh, one aim uh, to write this book. One aim that we had was to um, bring focus to the gender dimensions of uh, China's expansion into the global economy, global politics, and so on and so forth. Uh, And at the same time, to put a particular focus on masculinity, because masculinity is often uh, kind of double marginalized, as it were. Uh, It's already uh, gender is already marginalized in the in the sort of general discourse, mainstream discourse and masculinity. Let's say if we take the example of academic studies on gender is, is, is sidelined even more because over the past few decades, uh, women's uh, uh, issues uh, and uh, women's status, quite rightly, uh, I should say, have been at the forefront of uh, gender studies. Now, uh, the desire to bring uh, a spotlight to masculinities is not in any way to try to uh, reduce the amount of work on, on, on women's uh, uh, issues and equality uh, I think there's uh, plenty of uh, work that can still be done on that. That's an ongoing struggle. It's just to bring it's uh, the effort here or the aim here is to bring, uh, you know, masculinity studies into the picture uh, mm. at the same time. And the reason why transnational uh, dimensions are very important is because uh, really, uh, coming back to something Gung said in his initial remarks about there not being any one particular Chinese masculinity uh, that that has got any model of Chinese masculinity in and of itself, uh, untainted, untouched by other cultural forces. Um, uh, This has become... Uh, a real issue in a globalizing world. We still have uh, a, a mainstream discourse uh, in, in most countries around the world, if not all countries around the world, in which the idea of cultures uh, are, are still seen as inherently uh, belonging to particular lands, as relatively unchanging, 
uh, and uh, and as kind of uh, being able, to, one can define them through a list of characteristics, and and uh, this is a, a really uh, uh, problematic view of culture and and all cultural facets such as gender, as much. Uh, scholarship in recent decades has shown. So by taking a transnational view, we can show very clearly that the hybridity, as Gung was saying, of Chinese masculinities, and by extension, hybridity of Chinese culture. You can't, we can't talk about masculinities without also being aware of the hybridity of the culture in which um, they're being produced. Mm, mm. No, that's absolutely right. And I, and I think taps into something very important uh, for anyone looking at any dimension, I think, of, of China today, uh, not least because the Chinese government itself would perhaps often like to uh, forward a, a view of a sort of monolithic uh, Chinese culture, which, of course, uh, is very difficult to, to maintain when you're on the ground there. And the nuanced studies uh, that are uh, present there throughout this uh, edited volume really, really bring that diversity out. Um, Gung, could I turn to you perhaps? Uh, as Derek mentioned, there's a lot of diversity in the present day uh, sphere of, of, of Chinese masculinities. But of course, change over time is also a key dimension mm. uh, to uh, looking at this uh, in the present. And it seems that really resonating throughout the cha- all the chapters in this book, uh, which I should mention is divided into two uh, distinct parts, although not mutually exclusive ones, uh, mm. between representations in part one and sort of uh, enactments and practices in, in part two. Um, resonating throughout all of those chapters are these kind of historical junctures, which we might see as key uh, in, in the uh, contemporary era of Chinese masculinities, uh, the end of the Mao era, mm. the Tiananmen Square massacre, the return of Hong Kong to um, mainland control, and I suppose the rise of China more generally. Uh, in the last two decades. Could you give us some sense, especially because you've studied it with great historical depth, as you mentioned, uh, from your PhD onwards, mm. how uh, these historical junctions have, have informed the uh, broad contours of Chinese masculinities and how, how it has changed in recent decades? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. Um, maybe I'll start with the title of the book, The Cosmopolitan Dream. Mm. Um, so why it is called The Cosmopolitan Dream? Uh, it comes from... The uh, Xi Jinping administration's um, slogan of the Chinese dream, the, the Zhongguo Meng, you know, and the cosmopolitan dream refers to uh, not just masculinity, but um, um, gender in general or Chinese subjectivity in general. Uh, there's a trend or there's a um, um, uh, tendency to have to harbor this uh, this wish, this uh, desire to transcend locality, uh, to become cosmopolitan, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then this is in line with the government's uh, promotion of uh, the image of uh, China in the new era, uh, which is a more open, um, modern, and, uh, uh, and, and as, the slogan said, uh, as the slogan goes, to connect track, connect track with the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, but at the same time, there is a paradox. A paradox that is, uh, on the one hand, there's a popular, uh, there's a general desire, general wish to be connected with the world, uh, to be more co- cosmopolitan by the general uh, population and the government. But on the other hand, in media, in the Chinese media, we can find a strong desire. Uh, uh, or emphasis on confidence, uh, confidence of Chinese culture, okay, mm-hmm. uh, or um, the negotiation of China's place uh, in in the world uh, mm-hmm. by dint of its size, by dint of its uh, economic um, um, growth, you know, and, and in in the media. Um, Chinese film and TV will find lots of examples. And this is maybe uh, a new trend. Uh, as, as you said, there's a, you know, a historical um, uh, change of masculinity. For instance, the Confucian, you know, the Confucian type of masculinity, the ideal man would be the Junzi, 
right? Mm. Uh, who uh, show little interest in women, but uh, uh, highly self-disciplined and is devoted himself to the political, lofty political causes, okay? Mm. And probably that was the, the dominant official discourse during Confucian or pre-modern uh, time. And in Maoist culture, uh, the hero, the revolutionary hero, uh, fighters, who is selfless, uh, and also show, uh, you can say, is a kind of desexualized, because uh, there's no romance, no heterosexual romance between the male and female fighters, okay? So like Lei Feng and like the uh, communist fighters in the model drama, model plays, mm-hmm. um during the Maoist period, and that type of, of, of man may be regarded as the, uh, the predominant type of um, ideal masculine during the Maoist period. So it was changing time. So from Confucian time to the Maoist to the contemporary entrepreneur, uh, transnational businessman or Haigui returnees from overseas, we can... We, we probably could argue that uh, um, for each time, for each epoch in time, there was a predominant uh, um, hegemonic type of male images. Um, but at the same time, we can find other uh, marginal or um, different types of men represented in film, literature, and, and, and the media. And, mm. and this is cosmopolitan uh, or cosmopolitanism with Chinese characteristics. For me, uh, this was the, a new trend. This is a new trend and also is a very interesting uh, type of um, uh, male images emerging in Chinese, in Chinese media, which deserve our attention today. Sure, sure. Well, that's, yeah, that, I, th- I think we'll get on uh, in, in the course of the interview to more into how some of these uh, historical precedents and these models from uh, much longer ago in, in Chinese history uh, remain sort of current and, and play a role uh, in, in curious ways in the present. But you've just, uh, yeah, you've just drawn us very uh, neatly into uh, the uh, first part of the uh, volume and, and your own chapter, in fact, yep. uh, cosmopolitans, uh, Cosmopolitanism with Chinese Characteristics. Yes. Um, could you say a bit more about uh, the uh, representations that you studied uh, and, and that have been something that you focused on for a while? Um, you particularly focus on TV dramas. Uh, so could you say what, what, what some of these dramas are and what kind of uh, visions of masculinity, particularly this transnational business masculinity you mentioned, mm. uh, come out in, in those uh, TV programs? Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, the reason why I'm interested in TV television programs is because um, there are already an established body of research on Chinese film but compared with uh, uh, Chinese film, Chinese TV is um, relatively understudied. Um, but as you know, there are over 1 billion TV viewers in China, and television is becoming a new symbol, new carrier of China's soft uh, soft power uh, in today's world. And so I, th- I think that um, more study, more scholarly uh, interest uh, should be paid to this type of, this genre of uh, popular culture. And, and also uh, Chinese TV dramas, why it is important? Because it reflects um, a negotiation between the state and the individual, which might be particular uh, to uh, peculiar to to China to the social situation in China, because uh, all TV stations are state owned, and mm. all the TV programs have to uh, undergone heavy handed censorship before they are allowed to to uh, to air. Um, at the same time, television is a highly commercialized field; is highly uh, profitable, and there are uh, TV. Production companies who uh, make a fortune by producing TV dramas because of the large market, right? Um, so that that's why I find this is a you know a, a very important, a highly influential 
form of a popular culture, and uh, especially from the perspective of gender, uh, we can find you know um, different types of um, uh, male and female images are constructed and promoted in the TV programs. Um, so back to your question, um, uh, the first chapter of um, the book, uh, Cosmopolitanism with Chinese char- Characteristics, uh, I in this chapter, I uh, examined three m- most uh, recently popular TV dramas, and uh, I've been focusing on the transnational Businessman uh, or the, the high grade returnees from overseas because they mm. they are believed to be uh, the portion of Chinese population who are most cosmopolitan. Uh, so mm. in the dramas, you know, they they for instance, they their language proficiency, they can speak good English, and their knowledge about Western world, their knowledge about you know how to drink coffee and wine and how to play golf, all these are represented as a signifier of, of their uh, modernity, modern identity, and, and their cosmopolitan identity. Uh, so I find this is a very, very um, uh, interesting uh, phenomenon. And in other chapters, uh, we also have... Um, uh, I mean, other chapters also covered. Uh, like German uh, Chinese man in German TV drama and mm. uh, uh, transnational Chinese masculinity in Hong Kong films and uh, uh, and gay identity, gay masculinity uh, in Beijing Story, which is a, a novel, and uh, also mm. um, masculinity in Ha Jin's uh, Chinese, uh, overseas Chinese writer Ha Jin's works. And uh, also uh, masculinity in Feng Tang's uh, novel. Feng Tang mm. is also a um, um, popular Chinese writer today. Um, mm. So it, it, it would be impossible to um, exhaustively you know, cover, because the, as you said, this is a very ambitious uh, project, tra- mm-hmm. yeah, transnational yeah. masculinity. So ideally, I mean, if you could cover the transnational representation uh, between China and the most major countries like China and Japan, China and the United States, China and Africa, China and Europe. That, 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 I think that might be a, a, an ideal picture, but we were not just, you know, in, not impossible. It's just impossible for us to, to you know, cover all these uh, topics. And so, yeah, so I think basically we just, um, all the chapters focus on this um, um, paradoxical interplay between a desire to be cosmopolitan and also a desire to uh, retain or highlight the Chinese identity or the Chinese-ness. Right, right. And yeah, I think that's it. And it, it's, uh, as I mentioned, too, a, a very a sort of cosmopolitan presentation of, of all these things, too, because as you say, uh, we have um, yeah, Arnhelt Johanna Höfler talking about uh, German uh, crime television series, this this uh, Tartwort, uh, and, and how Chinese figures appear in that. Sheldon Liu talking about film representations. Um, Hongwei Bao, who is also, I should note to listeners, uh, being a a guest on a previous uh, New Books in East Asian Studies mm-hmm. podcast, so look that out, talking about um, gay identity. And uh, uh, then Le Jol uh, Su yep. uh, talking uh, about this particularly interesting question of, of one masculinity, um, the historical kind of Confucian ideal of the, the male scholar. Um, Derek, I wonder if I could turn to you um, on this particular subject, uh, because uh, you, you have uh, done a lot of work with... Um, overseas Chinese businessmen and, and uh, as well as those you mentioned in, in Beijing. Um, could you say something about the place of uh, this kind of literati or, or, or uh, erudite scholar identity and how that uh, figures within this sort of transnational business identity of some of, some of the Chinese men you've worked with? Yes, uh, I have conducted uh, interviews uh, in London uh, uh, in in around 2014, uh, with uh, Chinese uh, middle class, uh, one would say businessmen, 
usually these were, or often these were men who had come to the UK to study uh, uh, for masters and PhD, but not exclusively. Some of them had uh, already achieved uh, higher education degrees in China, and then uh, came over to work in the UK. Uh, so the, these were these were all men in professional occupations, and they had uh, a very high level uh, education behind them. And what became clear to to me was that, and what was explicitly addressed uh, 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 very uh, clearly and thoroughly by two of them, uh, was the uh, attention that they were paying to historical models of Chinese masculinity, specifically Confucian models, but not exclusively Confucian models of masculinity, uh, such as the Junzi. Also, uh, uh, Buddhist ideas as well uh, were were informing the way that they uh, were thinking about their own masculinity. Uh, So uh, there were also several of them who uh, articulated uh, particular um, attraction or affiliation with uh, what could be considered as conventional Confucian family ideas of filiality, of responsible fatherhood, of uh, containment of behaviour, uh, especially in public, uh, with regard to the to women, uh, with with uh, not uh, behaving badly. In the ways that they, uh, they they saw or they characterized some British men as behaving uh, in terms of excessive drinking uh, mm. and uh, fighting and so on. So there was this sense uh, from all of the, uh, or the majority of my informants that their time in the UK had caused them to reflect uh, more. Uh, at length on their own sense of what it meant to be a Chinese transnationally mobile man. And the ways in which they were constructing their masculinities, therefore, were maybe clearer to them in some ways than if they had remained in in China, uh, in a sense that they were deliberately reaching for uh, ideas of um, moral uh, masculinity uh, that they um, uh, they they that they were drawing from the Confucian canon. So, for example, uh, there would be uh, uh, some of them would talk to me about the um, the the inadequacy of the models of masculinity put forward gen- in, in main in what had hitherto been the mainstream uh, um, uh, gender discourses. In, in China, uh, which which had not drawn so much on historical models, but were more consumerist uh, models of masculinity, uh, drawing from Western uh, notions of you know middle class consumerism or um, uh, earlier models of socialist masculinity. Of course, are now considered passe. The ones that uh, Gung was mentioning earlier were the peasant soldier from the Mao era. So there's this sense that. To, to define themselves as Chinese, they needed to go back into uh, a historical hinterland of uh, models of masculinity. And uh, the one in particular that I've written about uh, in a couple of articles is, is this notion of the, the dunes of masculinity. And they're not coming up with this idea uh, uh, by themselves. There is a, a, an intellectual discourse. There are public intellectuals such as uh, Yu Chou Yu, uh, Yao Jiangchou, who are writing about Junzi masculinity as an appropriate archetype for educated middle class or educated elite, if you like, men to base their own sense of masculinity upon. Now, there's a danger in this in that it's inherently class-driven and that it excludes men, uh, contemporary men, contemporary Chinese men uh, who are not from the well-educated middle classes uh, 
from this kind of um, elevated, historically infused uh, uh, um, elite masculinity. So th- there's a sense that uh, this uh, drive to produce a kind of uh, hybrid Confucian, scholarly, educated, uh, but at the same time, uh, business savvy, uh, globalized, cosmopolitan, mobile masculinity is uh, a maneuver by middle class men, whether conscious or not, to shore up, to, um, to produce a kind of uh, status, social status that privileges them uh, towards other kinds of men, and not just uh, men who are poorer than them, but uh, uh, men from uh, entrepreneurs who, you know, the Baofahu, these suddenly rich um, uh, uh, industrialists and uh, and uh, businessmen who don't come from a very well-educated background. And this is not to uh, also uh, uh, neglect the fact that uh, women, of course, historically have been excluded from being junza. Now, there's nothing to say that theoretically that women could be jun- that, w- that women could not be junza in a contemporary age. But the, the junza archetype is so freighted with notions of masculinity, privileged masculinity, a high a masculinity that is high up in the hierarchy uh, mm. associated with men. It's very it, it's kind of difficult for women to get the same purchase on that. In contemporary society, mm, mm, that's really interesting, and I think uh, what you were saying there about uh, the the possible uh, implications of trying to uh, capture Junza or privileged Junza identity uh, as a as a way of uh, yeah, as you say, shoring up a sort of um, more elite um, male groups is it's it, it, it uh, speaks of how uh, there can be a kind of class. Uh, analysis that co- cross cuts the gender analysis throughout this book. Um, uh, actually, uh, to mention again, Hongwei Bao's chapter uh, says really interesting things about um, a kind of Marxist uh, class based gay identity that emerges uh, in certain transnational scenarios. And equally, uh, the Le Zhou Su uh, chapter that I mentioned uh, describes this kind of uh, emergence of, of a neo one. Uh, masculinity in an in a migratory context uh, where you have uh, elevated or in very intelligent uh, Chinese men abroad whose class status is suddenly transformed by the fact that um, they are in a new society where their uh, maleness and their, their, their particular strengths are not uh, valorized in the same way. Um, in any case, though, um, the uh, final chapter in that uh, first part is the Feng Kang one by Pamela Hunt that, uh, that you mentioned, uh, Gung. Um, but perhaps we'll move on now to, uh, to chapter two and turn back to you, Gung. Um, chapter two actually begins with a, a really interesting chapter uh, by Jamie Coates. Uh, so, sorry, so I should say part two uh, begins with a really interesting chapter by Jamie Coates about Li Xiaomu, uh, a uh, Chinese emigrant to Japan um, who has gone through many kind of manifestations of Chinese masculinity mm. and uh, as as viewed uh, in in sort of China's near abroad uh, in in Japan? Um, this kind of draws attention to uh, the influence of East Asia, uh, not just the kind of hegemonic, perhaps uh, uh, Euro American forms of masculinity that today uh, are present in in China. Uh, but also the, the the role that Korea and Japan play. Um, could you say a bit more in general about about Korea and Japan uh, and the kind of male uh, representations and, and and practices that uh, have uh, have or have not uh, had an effect on uh, Chinese masculinities in the present? Mm, uh, yeah, I guess probably there are two questions. One is um, masculinity and the space. Um, I think this is this is one of the theoretical framework for the whole book, and we also mentioned it uh, in in the introduction. That is, uh, the significance of studying men transnationally is masculinity and femininity, and not just um, uh, performance, but also it is it is a it is a construction or a production of space. Um, so that, that means what 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 type of what kind of man you are uh, is is not it does not depends on who you are but where you are you know 
Mm. Uh, a Chinese man uh, like Li Xiaomu who migrated to a foreign country, uh, this migration will bring forth changes to his masculinity, to his uh, behavior, and, and to his identity as a man. Um, so I think this, this book can, can be regarded as a good start uh, in mm. exploring this uh, uh, dynamic interplay between gender and space, uh, which is, a, I, I think this is a, um, potentially a fruitful area of exploration. And, and also, uh, as you said, the, 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 this question also involves the influence of Korean and Japanese popular culture on Chinese masculinity, which is a hot issue today. Um, I, I was interviewed by several media outlets on this uh, topic. Um, mm. For instance, they are interested uh, why this um, so-called pan-East Asian soft masculinity uh, increasingly popular in China, and why there are more people wear makeup or male beauty products in China. And definitely, I, I agree that there is um, uh, influence of uh, uh, Korean and Japanese popular culture, like K-pop and K-drama. And mm. uh, some scholars attribute this to a shared heritage among these countries. That is the Confucian scholarly scholar masculinity. Um, mm. But some Korean scholars would deny that. They, they, they wouldn't agree with that. Um, mm. So this is, there's debate you know, on whether the soft masculinity or male beauty in today's East Asia have anything to do with uh, the fragile scholar, the, the Confucian um, scholar-type masculinity in the past. Um, but I think uh, it is an um, undeniable fact that is this type of man, this type of image is particularly popular in East Asian countries, whereas in European and American society, maybe um, they're not that popular or the toler- they cannot be tolerated by mainstream media um, in the West. Um, mm-hmm. So... Uh, yes, and I also have done some research on the Korean wave uh, in both mainland China and Hong Kong, and um, uh, I would say that uh, the the impact, the influence was um, uh, enormous. Uh, mm-hmm. Young people, especially you know, uh, students, high school and university students, they were heavily they were heavily influenced by um, Korean pop culture. Um, right. Yes, and this is a, a very interesting case study uh, in terms of the flow of image and flow of discourse in terms of gender uh, in, mm. in today's globalized world. I would, yeah, I'd, I'd agree uh, very much, and, and that uh, comes through in uh, in, in the uh, volume as a whole too, um, to the point even where, as you mentioned in your chapter and as is present in some others, uh, specific TV formats travel between mm. Uh, countries and so uh, if you imagine that characters within those are being transposed from one place to another uh, it certainly uh, opens up a lot of questions around uh, the kind of communication there yeah, between uh, not just the global dimension but also the regional uh, east asian side of things um, as part two progresses uh, we have Jin Feng's uh, chapter on uh, Thailand and uh, and uh, the promotion of a sort of vision of masculinity through uh, uh, gastronomic expertise, which uh, which is uh, really fascinating. Um, and then uh, a trio of chapters nine, ten, and eleven, uh, which all look at fatherhood uh, by uh, Lin Song, uh, Miriam Driesen, um, and uh, Ting Yu Kang. Um, Derek, perhaps I can turn to you. Uh, you alluded briefly earlier in your comments to some of your interlocutors' uh, interest in, in fatherhood uh, as a component of a, of a modern uh, masculine identity. Um, could you say something a bit more about uh, how the role of the classic breadwinner, uh, sort of, uh, yeah, that role for a father uh, is uh, unfolding in contemporary masculine discourse? Um, and how that interlocks with uh, the broader changes in masculinities that we've discussed uh, so far. Yes, the uh, the breadwinner model uh, of masculinity, I, I think, is still the uh, uh, 
the main, uh, if you like, uh, we can say it's got a hegemonic dimension to it as, uh, as a as a a kind of uh, ideal of uh, male success in uh, in contemporary Chinese society. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a difficult one. To, for men to negotiate, because especially uh, when it comes to the uh, the middle class men that I've I've talked to, the white collar men that that I've uh, been talking with over uh, several years, because uh, on the one hand, uh, their ideal uh, or the way they see themselves in, in their very modern masculinity that they aspire to represent is is uh, uh, through uh, portraying themselves as uh, very attentive to gender equality in the uh, relationship, in the uh, the marital relationship or in the partner relationship. Uh, and uh, it's all the way through to um, discussing uh, ideas and decisions with uh, their partners before going ahead with anything. However, um, uh, when it comes to the crunch, uh, men often have admitted to me that they still wish to still feel they have to have the final word on uh, decision-making in the family. And I think this is linked to the breadwinning ideal. It's a kind of a uh, sense of masculine status that uh, it hinges upon uh, being the one who brings in the most money, the higher salary, uh, and uh, a loss of face, conversely, if uh, one's uh, wife uh, earns uh, uh, more. Uh, and uh, although clearly there are uh, instances in China, uh, where uh, female partners are earning more than male partners. And in fact, I found that amongst blue-collar workers, that's a much more widely accepted notion. Uh, uh, The the idea there being that uh, the more money that can be brought into the family, the better. But when a man aspires to climb up to a higher social status of masculinity, the elite, middle uh, middle class elite masculinity, uh, there is even an idea that um, uh, one's wife not working then becomes uh, uh, a means of demonstrating that uh, you've made it, you've succeeded as a man because you earn enough uh, to to the extent that your your wife doesn't need to work. So I think that, that breadwinner ideal is still there. And I think if you look at uh, the chapters um, uh, by Miriam Dreesen and Ting Yu Kang in the book, uh, and even Lin Song's uh, work on the, uh, the the TV series, that where we're going, we can still see this uh, breadwinner ideal, this sort of uh, the the man associated, the the male in the in the family, uh, the the father, uh, the the husband, bringing in. The, the bulk of the earnings. So in uh, Lin Song's chapter on the on the uh, TV series Dad, where are we going? Which looks at fathers and sons and puts them into situations uh, outdoors uh, for them to contend with. Uh, Lin found that although there are contestations of masculinities, there's still uh, in terms of uh, you know how harsh they should be or how tender they should be to the the, the child. In terms of the relationship between the husband and the wife, it's still fairly conventional in that the husband uh, has more authority and deals with the the kind of wider uh, dimensions of the, the family rather than the domestic space per se. And then the um, the, the the so it's seen as the as the main breadwinner uh, still. And then in in the fathers in Miriam Dreesen's chapter, who are blue collar workers going to Africa, they are they are driven. Uh, to to look overseas for work, uh, often by a sense that their sense of masculinity is being eroded in China because their wife may be uh, earning more, or they're not than them, or that they're not uh, earning as much as other uh, men uh, in the uh, in the uh, you know peer group, and so. They uh, then seize upon this opportunity to go overseas and make more money uh, through the overseas work in, in, in Africa. Uh, and, and, and by doing that, they help the family, but also shore up their sense of a breadwinning masculinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and uh, in Ting Yu Kang's chapter uh, about birth tourism in, in, the, in the United States, uh, the, the woman is sent over to 
uh, the wife is sent over to uh, uh, the States to have the child so that the child can get U.S. citizenship. And the man demonstrates, who, who, the husband who's left in China often uh, demonstrates his uh, masculinity, again through a breadwinning uh, um, uh, practice uh, of sending huge sums of money over to to help facilitate the birth of the child in uh, America. So I think the breadwinning uh, breadwinner model is still there, although it's um, clearly uh, uh, it, it being uh, practiced in different uh, 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 versions uh, in contemporary mm-hmm. China. And yeah, and in those latter two chapters, in particular, the Eastern and Kang chapters, we get a really stark sense of that and the negotiations and tensions that emerge as the breadwinner role is uh, continues to be valorized, even as ideas about being a, a more caring, sort of softer father figure uh, are also in the mix, uh, if you like. And, and I think that the tremendous distances and the real um, up close and personal kind of feeling that uh, that both those chapters convey is a uh, is a real a real strength uh, of the book. Um, finally, uh, Gong, I'll perhaps turn back to you. Uh, the last chapter of the book by Xia Zhang um, deals with uh, an issue which uh, Derek uh, alluded to there: the kind of partnering, the question of partnering and, and male female relationships. Um, in the earlier case with fatherhood, we're dealing with mature relationships and how uh, how partners uh, negotiate their respective responsibilities towards children. But uh, what, what emerges in the final chapter, um, Xiao Zhang's chapter, is a, is a really kind of gritty uh, and, uh, and really contentious, if, if you like, uh, field of, of relationships between these kind of global, uh, global uh, men and women, indeed, um, and, and the unfolding kind of picture of masculinity among foreign students uh, in the US, uh, given that your research deals with some of these highway figures um, and indeed their sort of, uh, I guess, aquatic cousins that Xia uh, outlines there, the Hai Dai and a whole load of other high-based uh, <laughs> figures uh, who are people who've studied overseas mm. and, and, and returned to China or remained overseas. Could you say something about the kind of the way that masculinity uh, has has been shaped by the experiences of men and women who are, who are both outside China uh, in, in the context like the one described in this final chapter? Um, yes, I think um, this this Hai um, Dai uh, phenomenon it, it shows kind of anxiety, right? Because masculinity ultimately um, is is a type of anxiety. Uh, this is is true for every every man. So all men are worrying. Uh, they're anxious that they are not masculine enough. Uh, that they're not they cannot live up to the standards of um, uh, people's expectations. And um, um, so uh, men and women outside of China, um, I, yeah, maybe I can comment from the perspective of uh, representation um, that is, um, you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there's, a, there's a popular imagination of um, life of um, Chinese students overseas or Chinese um, um, migrants overseas. And uh, mm-hmm. in this representation, we can always see uh, imagined conflicts between cultures, uh, mm-hmm. uh, China and the West. Um, and, 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 and generally, all foreigners are imagined as a, as a whole. As, a, as the other, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so in these TV pro- uh, dramas or films, uh, you, it, it's, it's very often uh, to see that um, these men from China or people from China are encountering the so-called cultural uh, shock or cultural difference, um, which in most cases are not, um, um, not real problems. Okay, um, but it shows it, it, it shows the kind of rep- representation of foreign countries by Chinese people or by Chinese um, uh, TV producers and targeted mm-hmm. at uh, domestic audience. Um, mm-hmm. So sometimes, if you compare the representation with accounts by Chinese students uh, or the Chinese, um, um, you know, uh, people who have been living 
abroad. And then we find this very interesting comparison. It reveals, you know, the, the gap between the imagination, the imagined life of these people and their real problems, their real experience overseas. Um, mm. Another thing uh, probably um, I, I could mention is um, uh, nationalism. Uh, again, this is a paradox. Uh, someone would say that you know the most patriotic people nowadays are Chinese living abroad. Um, so mm-hmm. why those people are supposed to, they are exposed to Western culture and they got a degree, they studied overseas, they got a degree from uh, Western uh, universities. Um, but 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 they are patriotic. They love China most. Uh, to think mm-hmm. about the uh, Olympic um, rally, you know, the torch rally and, and other events. Uh, in most of the cases, they are defenders. They are defenders of um, Chinese government and uh, mm-hmm. they're zealous, um, patriotic uh, p- people. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I mean, this is it's a very complicated phenomenon. I won't go through the details, but uh, if you ask me, I would say this is a, a, a also part of the the paradox between cosmopolitanism and nationalism that we witness mm-hmm. uh, among today's overseas Chinese men and women. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, and that, that really comes out uh, in in these sort of questions of of how some of these overseas students represent themselves as Chinese mm. and also as men and in dialogue with the masculinities or the, the, the representations of the masculinities that are around them. Um, and uh, yeah, as you've outlined, uh, the, the, the role that uh, representations back in China of uh, Chinese people studying abroad and of the kind of people, the kind of others that they encounter there, um, the, the way they interplay uh, in everyday experiences of, of Chinese people who are actually studying abroad, um, well, in a sense, this uh, this uh, encapsulates uh, many of the concerns of the entire book, which uh, plays off really well uh, the representations and the sort of um, everyday practice uh, side, uh, and and the entanglement really of of masculinity in all these questions of of uh, nationalism, of the rise of China, and and of uh, well, the importance of, of China to all of our lives now. Um, so, well, thank you so much, uh, both of you, Derek and Gong, uh, for talking to us today. We've taken up a fair bit of your time at different times of day in the, in the, the UK and in Hong Kong. Um, but uh, perhaps before we go, we could just ask you our traditional final question, our New Books Network final question, uh, namely, what is it that you're working on currently? Um, Derek, why don't you uh, go first to say what you have currently in the pipeline? Well, um, it's probably more. What am I not working on currently? <laughs> given the pressures, pressures on my time, but uh, but I am finding some time to work on uh, 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 an article uh, with uh, Sula Jo, uh, one of the uh, contributors to the uh, volume on uh, masculinities in Hajim's work uh, uh, in uh, the novel Waiting. Uh, so a different novel from the one that's examined in the volume. I'm also uh, working on uh, a, a project, a book project, on uh, middle-class masculinities uh, in uh, China and uh, really trying to bring to the, the fore the, uh, the the class element that has been uh, talked about throughout today's uh, uh, discussion. Um, and uh, I think uh, uh, at the same time, I'm also uh, endeavouring to um, start a looking at uh, masculinities in visual culture a bit more seriously. Uh, and Gung's done an awful lot of work on this. Uh, I, I'm will be looking at various visual sources and uh, in the contemporary China. So a variety of things going on there. But I think uh, masculinity is still the central element. Mm, well, that, that's a pretty uh, inspiring uh, level of creativity and uh, <laughs> and, and industry, really. Uh, I guess which continues uh, the uh, yeah the book outputs that uh, we discussed right at the beginning. Uh, fantastic. Um, Gun, how about you? you? You mentioned earlier a current project. Uh, could you say a little more about? That? Yes, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm working on a book project, and the title of which is uh, Tele- "Televising Chinese-ness: 
gender politics and nationalism. Uh, so mm. I've finished the most part of it. The book uh, mm. looks at a, a variety of gender-related relationships, uh, like between sexism and the nationalism, women, the body and the nation, kinship and the nation uh, that's emerged in popular entertainment. And so hopefully it it will review an interesting yet little explored side of Chinese nationalism in the contemporary context. So masculinity is also involved, uh, but the book is not uh, exclusively on masculinity. It will also uh, touch upon uh, women and femininity. Um, Because gender, I mean, for me, gender is not just an identity, but also gender is about the reproduction of the nation. Because gender mm. is what you um, look for, look forward, uh, what you expect from your next generation, right? Both physically and uh, intellectually, how properly nurture mm. the next generation. Uh, so, so this book is um, um, basically I will still use uh, textual analysis as the main method. But also, I have done some field work, uh, interviews with TV audiences and uh, producers in China. Uh, so this mm-hmm. is also this, it, it will be um, uh, interdisciplinary and um, uh, multiple uh, method uh, project. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Well, ha- well, having uh, yeah, having having mentioned at the beginning that. Uh, uh, gender and and, and such uh, angles are not always the most commonly adopted when looking at uh, contemporary China. Uh, well, it perhaps seems that uh, between the two of you, you are uh, more or less single-handedly or, or dual-handedly uh, countering that entire deficit and uh, and really producing a, a huge amount of stuff that will be of uh, enormous value, I'm sure, to anyone interested in any of these questions. Um, in any case, though, uh, thank you both so much. Uh, for appearing on the show today. Uh, it was really great talking to you. Thank you very much. And to you. Thank you very much. And uh, listeners, uh, thanks for listening, as ever, to New Books in East Asian Studies, which is a podcast on the New Books Network. We will speak to you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>